So on today's episode of Game Mastery, we're going to be talking to Jesper and Autumn, and they are multimediaists. They have a blog, they have a podcast, they have a YouTube channel, they have instructional materials, they do face-to-face, they do online, they do training, they do it all. And they have multiple books published between them. Uh, Additionally, Autumn does art, and she does their covers. So. Like I said, multimediaists. But, as always, I'm Steve. I'm Tracy. I'm Andrew. And we have Autumn and Jesper. Hi, nice to meet everyone. Hello, and thank you for having us. And there you go, maybe you can... Figure out our voices since there are five of us on the podcast today. (laughs) And to put this out there as well, kind of the gateway to your multimedia web (laughs) is your Am Writing Fantasy podcast. Correct. Correct. Yes. And, you know, you've got, what, about 120 some episodes now? Yeah. Very good. Yes. You did your homework. <laughs> I, did, I did my homework on you guys. <laughs> I was even going to talk about the fact that you've got that free little piece of information on self-publishing. Yeah. And I thought that was an interesting piece because I know that, at least from my perspective and some other people that I've talked to who listen to the podcast, that you know, trying to figure out where to start on self-publishing is so daunting. Yeah. And you've got a little free instructional bit of material on that. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't even call it little, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> there is also big, uh, it's completely free, as you say. It's a video instructional course that covers all kinds of different um, topics related to self-publishing, and it basically just talks through everything we've learned over the many years we've been doing this and how to in our view, do it correct and best. <laughs> so it's uh, hopefully give people a shortcut if they want to self-publish stuff, then uh, they can take that course for free and avoid some of the mistakes that we made along the way. <laughs> we lead by non-example. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure yeah. you don't end up where we go. Very good. Andrew? So uh, do you think that the self-publishing stuff would apply to game modules if a uh, Game Master had an adventure that he had sort of put together and cobbled together. Do you think the material there would be useful for publishing that stuff? Yeah, it actually happens so that we have a uh, RPG RPG game in development actually in our own world as well, probably like a year away before we're going to publish it. But that, in fact, we are planning to publish that as well uh, and make it available so people can purchase it. So, yeah, that that's definitely possible. You need to do a bit of magic in the uh, formatting of the files to to make them look good in an e- sort of ebook format and so on. So you need to you need to find out how to do that well. But but it's definitely possible. Yeah. A side question about you know the formatting. Do you two use a specific application for your writing projects? I I use Scrivener, mm-hmm. and I was curious if you all use something similar. We both use Scrivener, and it's funny because we were having that conversation about Mac versus PC, and Scrivener is one of the few platforms where it doesn't matter. It's a Scrivener file, so it doesn't matter what you're set up with. Though we, so we can just send each other Scrivener files and be able to, since we co-write, that way we can just get the files. But 
then we have different software we use for formatting. So oh. we have three different softwares. I do not. I do the formatting, and Scrivener is nice, but I think the formatting, especially when you get the paperbacks, I mean, mm. they're so expensive on the print-on-demand that I, okay, that's my visual art background coming out, but they should be works right. of art. They should be something yeah. you cherish. So I use both Vellum and I use InDesign. So when we're doing, like, the role-playing game, when you have, like, those two columns that are graphic-heavy and you want fixed page layout, you need to mm. use InDesign, which is very high-end. And otherwise, Vellum is a fantastic formatting for flowable textbooks. It's quick. It's easy. You can put in all these little nuances, like drop caps and images of the chapter headings. And, oh. you know, that makes my heart flutter. <laughs> <laughs> I I wasn't familiar with Vellum. I I used and taught an intro to InDesign class, oh, and nice. I just I for some reason I hadn't thought about using InDesign for that for for modules, and now I'm like, of course I would use InDesign. What am I thinking? Yeah, <laughs> you know. glad oh. to help that help you out with that. Yeah, now I, I know someone else. If I ever have questions, I will let you know. I'm I, I know InDesign, but this, I will, okay, well, you're, I'm always good at jumping to the advanced and miss the basics, so that's <laughs> <laughs> what I, I understand do. That. I understand that. And that it, and that's actually can be a problem mm -hmm. in, in, in my view and in my experience, which Andrew will probably back <laughs> me up on this, about going from the basic and, and leapfrogging into the advanced and then missing this chunk in the middle. Mm -hmm. And... Whereas that works out for my favorite manipulative, manipulative application is Photoshop. That's kind of where oh. I, I live. And oh, yeah. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, right? And so, but when you're, when you're doing something like writing and creating a world and you start with that basic bit, and if you leapfrog to the advanced, you, you've missed a whole chunk. You miss the part that makes it feel real. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that both of you have experience, you know, kind of learning to live in that middle place and, and going into the middle place without leapfrogging and slamming your viewers into too much. Yeah, it's, a, it's always a challenge, as we've said on, on other podcasts as well. One of the typical things to do, especially, and I did it myself, my, my very first novel has it as well. Uh, and then over the years, I, I've eased away from it. But uh, a very typical thing to do, especially in fantasy, is that the, you start out giving a lot of world building details. So the, maybe the first chapter or two, it's, it's a ton of world building stuff, which is not really that interesting. It is awesome for the author because this is like I've built all this this is so cool and I'm going to tell you about it but <laughs> honestly the reader couldn't care less and my first novel has it as well the same problem as any other novel that there's too much info dumping in the beginning and then uh, over the years we've sort of learned that uh, you need to stay away from that and instead give the world building details as and when it's relevant to what the characters are doing and then you sort of seed it in at those <laughs> times uh, and then it the reader doesn't even notice that there was some world building details that it just feels immersive instead. And, and then you just absorb it as you read the text, which is exactly what you want to do. But it's, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, I, I no. think that we've got a past podcast where Steve had done a, a world building game with some of his childhood friends. And the, the criticism for that game from his players was 
it was like going to a geography class the first <laughs> two sessions. You know, we had all of the, we had this lecture essentially on how the world worked and what was going on and what our characters were wanting to know. And I think that if you've got a large immersive world, it's difficult to sort of piece together that so that the material is discovered by the players. Do you have a strategy for doing that? So how do you do that glide to, so that the the players or the reader don't feel like you're lecturing to them for the first two chapters? What's your strategy for accomplishing that goal? I have a personal rule that I enforce on Jesper now that we write together that you never have more than two sentences of pure description without action, without dialogue, without something happening. And I also try to always keep it in, we always write in deep point of view. So a character point of view that is very close to what the character is feeling, touching, tasting, sensing. And so you have to explain the world through the character, and the character is not going to be overwhelmed with all these things happening at once. It is one piece. And you do it step by step. You have you have to take a deep breath whenever you feel like sharing and say, what do you really need at this moment? I think there's like this old idea that you're getting dressed to go out, and you turn around and look in front of the mirror, and the first thing you see, you take off. Because you don't need that extra glamour. And you need the same thing when you're thinking about sharing your world. What do you just need to get through this moment and share that little bit? Because if you're writing a book, you have 100,000 words to share the world. If you're doing a game, you have hours. You want to be able to save those really cool details for like six hours from now when everyone's like, oh my gosh, I'm so, oh wait, that's really cool. I want to know more about that. You have to just keep telling yourself that you don't need to overshare at the beginning because then you just exhaust people and you have nothing to talk about later. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say as well that a trick that I think you can apply as a game master, because it's basically sort of the same thing we do when we when we write our stories. And I think you could more or less apply the same thing when you prepare your game sessions, because when we are plotting our stories, we are plotting out what's going to happen in every chapter. We, we plot fairly on the heavy side because we're co-writing so it's pretty important that we align on what's going to happen otherwise we need to redo a lot of things which we don't want to do um, but when we do the plotting of the chapters usually i try to think about when i do that plot of I, is there any world building element that fits this stuff that is happening here and then i'm just adding a bullet to the uh, to the chapters to say share a bit about this order or the dragons or whatever it may be right because it's relevant to what's happening and i think you can apply exactly the same approach in your game master when you prepare a session to just think about out of all my 200 pages of world building stuff, is there anything in there that actually maps to what the players are going to do in this session? And then pick that piece out and, and plug it into the session and leave all the rest alone. You know, don't worry about it. You, you will have plenty of hours, as Autumn said, to go back to all the other things and plug those in at some point as well. I'm starting to feel triggered. It's like, how did you know about my 200 pages of world building? That I want to... <laughs> I've yeah, been there. What the hell's going on here? <laughs> Andrew's just back there going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> See, Steve? And and Tracy's smiling very nicely. Thank you, Tracy, because you know as well. I know. That's I have right. those notebooks full of world building that never turned into anything because it's hard to communicate your fantasy world to somebody else. That's the challenge. It really can be, yeah. yeah. Now, I, I will tell you, with Tracy saying that, you know, it's, you know, for for us thinking about these worlds that we've designed to play in, uh, Tracy has a, a really great ability to take 
small sections, these these vignettes that are kind of crystallized moments. And and uh, the majority of them are kind of life stories that that she writes about her experiences. And they're really wonderful when she, you know, puts these up on, you know, mostly shares them on social media. You know, this, somebody might say, I saw a giant woodpecker in the backyard. Well, Tracy's got, you know, a full page about the woodpecker and how she felt and how it connected to something that happened yesterday and her daughter was over <laughs> and there's this smell in the air. And so the, they're just these wonderful little kind of, ah, I don't even know how to describe them. They're moments, you know? It's like flash fiction almost, yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. And, you know, to me, I, I think Tracy could, you know, take these things and, you know, for a world building or a writing project, use them as a basis, you know, to expand on. You're talking about, you know, doing this thing with plotting a chapter. Mm -hmm. And I also think that that's something that I know that for me as a beginning game master, plotting the chapter, the, the, the session, the moment mm -hmm. is sometimes hard, but it, it's actually a simple process to, to get that one arc right? Mm -hmm. But it's all that stuff in the middle that you have to construct to get from the beginning to the end within that <laughs> chapter that, man, I get lost in that. <laughs> and especially when the players want to do something you hadn't planned for. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the quote that everybody keeps using, I know Frank on Roleplay Geeks, you know, that, that an adventure never survives its encounter with the party. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, because there's always somebody it's True. usually you steve <laughs> <laughs> guilty <laughs> totally guilty well when we tell these stories as game masters part of the pre-work that i do and that we have to do is make that little vignette that you use to introduce your players to the scene because you guys all your characters are in here and mm -hmm. you may have figured out what their motivations are and how that's going to direct the action. But for game masters, there's some characters in here and the rest are around the table and you're not sure mm -hmm. what they're going to do. So if you want to push them in a certain direction, that little snippet, you know, that little three paragraphs at the beginning of your adventure that you deliver to them, like a story, sets the tone, gives them pertinent information with like you have to not make them feel like they're getting hit over the head with it, <laughs> you know, right. but you've got to condense the feeling you want to make them feel in that little introduction and then let them go with it right yeah completely true <laughs> do you, you two ever do that with the characters that you create do you do you have an absolute idea when you start where you have created these separate characters and they're fully formed or do you kind of organically flesh out their you know them as as you write how do you do that for characters? Yeah, it's it's quite interesting because uh, because we're co-writing, I, I, uh, we we do a lot of the character building up front. So so basically, we know all the char the characters' motivations and what they want in life and all that stuff. We know up front, and then usually I write the first draft of the novel and then I give it to Autumn. But actually, to be honest, w when I write that 
I can't quite stick necessarily to or I cannot deepen it enough because I, I try to get through the first draft pretty quickly. So mm-hmm. I also I keep I'm keeping up the pace basically. So I, I don't linger on stuff. I just keep writing and then I send it off to Autumn. But but then once Autumn gets her hands on it, then she starts doing her magic on, on the characters and, and deepen them. So it it's sort of divided in two process parts basically. I definitely think it comes from the co-writing that we have a lot of development. But even even if you think you know your characters, you don't know them until you wear their perspective and their skin and really try to think and work with them. And you know them so much better by the time you get to the end of a book. I used to write each book at a separately when I was writing on my own and publish, you know, write, publish, release. And since then, I've started writing the whole trilogy, even if it takes longer to publish it, because... The character, you know them so well by the end of like the third book. And even though they've changed, because you want to have those character arcs, you want to have the character growing, you it's they've become a friend and you know them so much better and you can add in some hints of what they become at the beginning if you haven't released it yet and you can still have time to edit. And I think that's always the fun is just seeing how characters, you think you know them, but how is it really to have something that is almost a living, breathing person who's going to change. But the nice thing about planning it up front, the way Esper and I do, is that you connect them with the plot. So when you're writing a story, we have the advantage as writers to be able to say, we need this character to have this really bad flaw or this really bad view of the world. And because of that, they're going to make the whole story go ahead and happen in a certain way. And it feels very natural when you're gaming, you know, you're creating this world and you're setting up things that you, you, like you said, you don't want to hit the players over the head. You want them to pick up those clues and follow it along like breadcrumbs until they, you get that subversive group that decides to go over to the other thing just because they know you're not prepared. <laughs> that's, you know, it's, it's its own fun of keeping you on your toes, of making sure that you've developed everything you need. And so I think game worlds are a little more more in-depth, they're more fun to build because you get to just go totally geeking out on building all this stuff and then try to get your characters, you try to get your friends who are playing to go over there and do it. But they sometimes don't. Often do not. (laughs) They skip the good things. Listen to the Game Master. (laughs) Yeah, well, we usually just uh, move the things in front of them. So if they're about to miss it, you just pick it up and move it. And so... You can put anything behind a door that they haven't opened yet, you know. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. Magic See, portal. But, <laughs> yeah. And that that's something that Andrew and, and Tracy are familiar with that I'm still trying to learn. Is <laughs> you know, as Andrew says, you're god of the world, so if they decide they want to go over that hill, then put what was over that hill over that over hill. Over there. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, like yeah, for sure. oh you know. But in my first adventure, I had already described all the pertinent geology for two hours. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and you probably also know those uh, kind of uh, briefing note documents that, uh, you know, before session one, uh, like players will get a briefing note. And then it's like 25 pages of all kinds of law and like, who's going to read that? Nobody. They're going to show up to the first session and then the game master will be like, so as you know from that briefing, everybody will like, what? I don't know. I have no idea what you're talking about. I haven't read any of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which just breaks my heart. <laughs> yes. 
If you Tracy. want to introduce your players to a world that has these feelings in it, like your, I don't, I didn't read your briefing, Steve. I'm sorry. I don't know any about <laughs> the geology of your world. But if you want them to feel like they're in an oppressive society, write a scene that they witness a person in the stocks. Or if you want them to feel like they're in a society that's all religious, write a scene about a religious thing happening. Like you don't have to be like, you find the book of law and <laughs> now you have to read it. You know, you... You can let them discover it based on what unfolds. Sure. Like for us, it's sort of like set dressing. Yeah, it is the like, same as an intro in a novel. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's those first pages set the tone, set the world, introduce the character, the world, the, everything to the reader. And also depend on whether or not the reader is actually going to buy the book. So those are so important. And I, I think a lot of it actually comes from what we're used to in, in movies and stuff. I mean, j just imagine the intro trailer for Lord of the Rings, like the the Seven Rings were forged in Mount Doom and all that stuff. It is so cool, right? I mean, I, I can still get the goosebumps <laughs> from just watching it. I love it. But the difference is that it's it's a visual high-production media where they put a million dollars into special effects and it looks awesome, right? And I think in part... That is what authors and also game masters sometimes, we think that that's what we should be replicating. And then we're trying to do that, but it doesn't come across like that. It's to others, it's like, yeah, okay, are you done yet? Can we get to play, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I think that's part of the problem is that, that we think we can transform one media into another medium, and it doesn't work like that. You know, just to say this real quick, I was wondering, since you mentioned Sauron in your about information, if Lord of the Rings was somehow going to organically come up in the conversation <laughs> without being mentioned. Well, <laughs> Everybody has to take a drink. Everybody has to take a drink. Right. Lord, of the, Lord of the Rings, right? That's the Lord new uh, Lord of the Rings. I love this game. <laughs> Very good. You know, when I, I was thinking about the books that I read growing up, and so I, I was born in 1970, so the the books that I read growing up, of course, the first one, fantasy. The first one was The Hobbit, and that was fifth grade. And then sixth grade, I tried Lord of the Rings, and it took me through seventh grade to finish that because <laughs> uh, that was a little too much yeah. in, seventh, in sixth grade. So by the time I hit eighth grade, I, I had The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings behind me and I started reading uh, Terry Brooks mm. and his Shinar series and David Eddings and mm -hmm. the Bell and, and and those. And it seemed like almost every book that I picked up in that period, so late 70s through late 80s, they had very, very descriptive and in-depth, in some cases, historical prologues and prefaces and just this chunk of information up front. And I remember the David Eddings one talks about the history of the mad god and, <laughs> and all of this happened and it gives this this history. And I was trying to, we were listening to this on books on tape on a on a trip from West Virginia to Michigan with my daughters. and. Boy, they had a hard time with that beginning and all of that background information that I thought they were just going to love. <laughs> and it's just not, I, I wonder if during that time that there was this reliance on that because people were, you know, fantasy was having this kind of resurrection 
at that time. And they were trying to make these worlds that were different and say, you know, we're different than Lord. Of the, we're different than we we don't do the Hobbit. Everybody it's drink. Not... <laughs> 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 we're not going to be able to talk before this is over. So, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, some of us who are older like me, you know, I think maybe that has poisoned my mind and I, I, I just expect, I want to give all that info and it's just so hard to hold back because I think it's so cool. And I think you two said that about, you know, it's cool to the author, but the player just wants to play. Yeah. I, I think it's cool because you already know the world. And so it is actually expanding on your broad base knowledge, whether you're the author and you've had it in your head for weeks and months and are finally putting it on the page, or whether you are revisiting an old story. And so all of that additional lore adds to your enjoyment or experience. It deepens your understanding of the world. But for a novel use, uh, reader, a novel player, to be exposed to all that material, it is overwhelming because what's magical to you are the connections that you make, you're making with your existing knowledge. And if you don't have any existing knowledge, then there's no way to make those connections. And it's so the, confusing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a really good point. And just keeping your audience in mind is always a good idea because you're not on the same information level as you also also saying there, Andrew, right? You, you know all that background. And the reason why you find it cool is exactly because you have that knowledge, as you say, right? But yeah, especially nowadays, I think, I think you are right as well in, in, in saying that it was different, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But nowadays, with people watching YouTube videos, and if it's if nothing happens within ten seconds, they already clicked away because this is boring. Same mm -hmm. thing with um, Netflix, Amazon Prime, so on and so on. All the series, right? It has to be engaging all the time, otherwise nobody wants to watch it. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that that's how the audience expect things today. And and you can't waffle around with world building notes for three chapters because then people won't read it. And the same thing with with running a, an RPG campaign. You know, it, it has to be engaging because what is the alternative? The alternative is that I could be lying on my couch and watching an awesome show on Netflix. So if you're just going to sit here and bore me with all kinds of details, I would rather be over there. So and and you have to keep that in mind. You you're competing against the time that could be spent on something else. So you have to be pretty good at keeping it engaging. And the only way to do that is to make it relevant to the player and the character. If it's not relevant to them in the moment, then it doesn't really matter. Very true. And I'm going to argue with you, Steve, though. I, you're only uh, four years older than me. Oh. <laughs> so, <hey>. yeah, <laughs> hey. Same areas of the world, um, same same decade. It's a good decade. Yeah. But I, I was funny because I read a lot of the similar authors, but, you mm -hmm. know, some of my favorites were Mercedes Lackey and, and, and McCaffrey. And McCaffrey, so, yeah. So, oh, <laughs> And you know yes, what? Steve if failed they... to mention any female writers. I'm just. Did so. you notice that too? I was yeah. just like, I think maybe it's just the guys that liked prologues. Hello, I think all the women yeah. got right into the Margaret business because they're too Margaret busy. Rod. Margaret, Margaret oh, Weiss yeah. is awesome. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Tracy, ah, come on. So I don't think most of them did prologues. They're probably too busy running the world, running the house, and writing stories. So you know, they just cut to the chase. But that's my theory. <laughs> 
No, that's interesting. And it, it's also relevant because when we were growing up, there there really was a, a gender divide on so many things because I didn't pick up a Perth book until I was 30. What? Shame yeah. on you. Shame on you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just... It's just one of those things. I, the only the only female fantasy writer that I had read, and and you're going to laugh, it was Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman <laughs> and the D and D, the Dragonlance books, and all that. That that was the that was the only female fantasy writer that I had kind of exposure to. And at our little bookstore we had a, we had a little private bookstore before Walden books came in mm-hmm. when I was in junior high those books by the female authors were never the ones on the end cap where you you saw them oh, isn't they bad? never were they were always back in the aisle and you know I've th- I've thought very much about that over the years and how those things just weren't even in my my line of sight mm-hmm. And it it wasn't that I went in and said, you know, I want to read these male authors. It's I went in and they weren't visible. They weren't promoted. And that's terrible. Yeah. That's a shame. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but Tracy and, and, and you, well, you know, I think you, <laughs> yeah. you, all, you all saw them and maybe sought them out. And I was just grabbing what was there in front of me. Well, my mother was an English teacher, so she pointed me in the general direction of more challenging. Like, my folks weren't all that happy about... I mean, like, they loved all books, but it was like, you can read Tolkien, and but these, like, little paperback things that you're getting from the Hills spinner rack are worthless. Read something better. Go read The Old Man in the Sea <laughs> or Margaret Atwood or something. And I don't think I paid any attention that they were female either. I was a total tomboy, and I was all about <laughs> the swords. And going off and doing adventures because everyone expected me to stay home and, you know, I'd be living down the road from my parents and not have visited seven continents. You know, those little things. And they had they had my history written out and I was ready to go the other way, like most characters in role playing games. So I just did my own thing. I just found them mostly because I liked the artist on the cover. <laughs> and so I just liked the pictures better. And it just so happened that most of the ones I picked up were female authors. Huh. Hmm. Hmm. What do you feel about the Hildebrandt drawings for the Brooks series and things like that? You got any opinion on that? They're not my favorite. They're not my favorite. They're okay. Because yeah. they also did a Tolkien calendar back in the 70s. Oh. Just throw that in there. I had to, I had to connect a Tolkien reference somehow to that. <laughs> Everybody drink. Everybody drink. <laughs> Everybody. Before I move on, in, in kind of a drink stage, Andrew was going towards the microphone. Go ahead. I was going to go back to the modules, the 12 modules that they have, and if maybe a little brief synopsis of these. Are they standalone? Do they need to be followed in a particular progression? If they are standalone, are there certain modules that might be more attractive, you think, maybe to role players? You really emphasized, I think, number six, you said. So maybe a little more background on that. You want to do that, Odom? <laughs> You're going to make me do this, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> they, <laughs> that's because I put the website and the course together. So that even though we recorded 50-50, we've split up the modules. So half of them are, yes, whereas half of them are mine. But 
I'm the website builder and the graphic artist, so I get to put it all together and put the pictures on it. They are, that's a good question, Andrew, those modules, you know, without looking them all up, I would be able to go through every single one. I know the first one's intro and it's very easy and you have to do that one in order. I would say in general, all the modules build off of each other because they do step you through. They begin by giving you a basis, like make you question what kind of world you want to build. You don't just say... Everyone thinks of fantasy and they think Tolkien. And the first thing that happens in like module two is to really question what era? Why Why do you want to put it there? Why can't you make it sci-fi? Why can't it be under the sea? Why can't it be on a volcano? Really think about that so you develop something that's unique, which I think is important. It all doesn't have to be George R. R. Martin and we don't need ice and snow. It can be somewhere else. And I think that's an important part. And then it builds from there to create like a wish list. Like if you're telling a story, whether you're going to tell the story of a game or the story of a book, what do you need to make that story come to life? Because that's what I think is really neat about the course is that there's a lot of stuff you can go and Google world building. You can find these 150, 200 page or question lists of how to build your world. But that doesn't get you a story. It doesn't get you a game. It gets you a world. It gives you a list. It's like creating characters to me. You know, you can create a character list and interview. It doesn't make them living, you know, thinking, reacting, feeling beings by having a list. That doesn't do anything for me when I'm writing. So this course takes the idea of what kind of world you need to tell the story, even if it's just two sentences and a vague idea. So that as you build your world, you're also building up the story. And that is why it really does need to go in order. I would say maybe module five, which is more map making. You know, you could probably do that one standalone, but it does say, hey, you need this idea. You need to know your era. I mean, are you building sci-fi tech cities or are you building, you know, something that is, I mean, my first story was set in like Grecian Roman times. I didn't even start with, you know medieval swords and knights there's not a single knight in my entire thing so you can develop something totally new and build a story that goes with it so that when you're done the story that you've created has to live in that world or it wouldn't be the same place or it wouldn't be what it has become and module six is has a ton of video educational <laughs> stuff but essentially it is built so that, especially with module six, so that we we have some mandatory mod, uh, or sessions in there that like you do go you go through these first, like some basically building the foundation of 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 your world. But then after that, we have I think there's more than twenty five sessions afterwards. But the point with those is exactly that you shouldn't build all of those. So this is exactly what I would have done in the past. I would build all of that, <laughs> and and then I don't really need it. So instead. Module six will start asking questions about, okay, so if you're looking at this list, what out of this list of topics is particularly relevant to the story you want to tell? And then we are in the course telling you to pick three of them. And then you just click into this video training on those three alone and you build that and you leave the rest alone. And then maybe later on you will figure out, well, actually now I need this other element. And you can always go back to the course and, and take that one session and, and develop that. But But we're trying to narrow you in so that you don't spend too much time, but you have enough coming out of the course on the back end, right? So, so yeah, it, it is really trying to put things in, in the system rather, more than Definitely. anything else. Andrew, follow-up or Tracy, follow-up? Give me a second. 
we'll edit this little <laughs> chunk out here where we're all silent, right? Will uh-huh. we? Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> Tolkien. Everybody <laughs> <laughs> drink. So how important is it to build your world before you build your story? So you have a story idea about a character and it's a universal story about love or about loss or whatever. Can you start telling that story and then make the world like, do you need, how much world do you need before you can start telling a story? I guess it's my question. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a good question because it ties right back into the to the core stuff as well. Because basically, <laughs> once you're done with with the course modules, you have what you need. But but in terms of answering specifically to to what you're saying, uh, I know that there are different views on this. So there are those who will will build as they go, basically. So they will have very little knowledge going in, and then then they'll figure it out as they go. Maybe they maybe they'll do a bit of world building in sort of the starting area of if it's a novel, then the starting area where the character starts the story, or if it's a an RPG campaign, then they do a bit of like, this is the local area and this is the ruler and stuff, but everything else that goes on in the wider world, I have no idea. I'll figure it out as we get there. That is one way to do it. And well, I was about to say, I'm not going to say there's anything wrong with that, but at the same time, I think I am going to say a bit that there's something wrong (laughs) with that because (laughs) in my view, I feel like when you know what is happening, not in, in a million details, but once you know what is happening a bit in the wider world, you will be able to seed in some of that information to in what is happening to the characters, which means that as a reader or as a player, you get a feeling like if I walked over that hill over there, there would be something. It's not like a blank canvas over there because I can feel that either the author or the game master, they know what's over there. And and it, it helps the immersion because it feels like that there is so much more here and I can feel it even though I'm not engaging with it right now. And you will not be able to do that unless you have a bit more in-depth understanding of your own world. Otherwise, well, you're making it up as you go, which I guess could be fine, but at the same time, you do end up hitting all the same tropes and cliches that you've seen a million times because that's the first thing that comes to your mind. So, yeah, I would say it's important to... to You shouldn't go overboard with it, but it's important to build it out in advance. As an author, we have the advantage that if you want to pants your story and make it up as you go, you can finish it and then go back and edit and put in all the stuff that you missed the first time through. But if mm-hmm. you're you know, leading a game, or if you don't really want to go back and rewrite the whole thing a couple times to then develop the world and what you need, it really comes out so much better if you know what those hurdles, even just having a map. I mean, everyone thinks the map is for the readers. It's The first map is really for the author, because without that, you don't know where everything's located. You don't know they just wandered through a chasm or a swamp or there's mountains there. Those are hurdles that if you haven't developed your world and you're just doing it on the fly, it's not really going to make sense. It's not going to be as in-depth. And when you get to the end, you're going to have to go back and put it there. And I mean, I can't imagine like sitting down to be a game master and be like, yeah, I was busy. So we're just going to go with it and I'll make it up as we... <laughs> it would be a really interesting game, though, wouldn't it? It happens more often than you would think. <laughs> They're just really good at pulling everyone. Well, it's. I think that for a game master, the map is, as we suggested, is more fluid. So we know that in this area, 
there are some connecting elements that there's a, a mountain range that they need to explore here, or there's a graveyard over in this particular area. But the exact locations of those isn't really important. Whether it's to the north or to the south is is not an important detail. It's what the where the story is being driven at the moment and what element you want them to expose. So if they go to to the south and they've done certain things the the characters have made certain decisions, then it might be that when they go south, they discover that mountain range. Mm -hmm. Or it might be that when they go south, they discover the graveyard. And that's dependent on their decisions. So that the there's no concrete, there's no real geography that's that's set. You have mm -hmm. these elements that exist in your world, but their physical location's not so much important. So, but you thought about them. Oh yes, and, you uh, and, you, and, and hopefully you have. And then, you, of course, you do have some of those tropes that you just sort of rely on, but to, to fill in the gaps when they do something unexpected. And that's just usually to get over the hump to the next to the next spot that you have planned. You don't want to linger in that area where you've not. It's more of a transition thing, I think. So, I was thinking about that the the expression that all politics are local politics. That you know people think about their existing interactions that their decisions are made by based on what they what they know about their day-to-day -day experiences and that I would imagine that when you're writing the world especially if it's a character driven story that those experiences really do even if it's knowledge about the broader world that the actual decisions of the character are largely based on their own their experiences locally I don't know that many, especially Americans, are familiar with the intricate politics and activities that are going on in Northern Europe, that that's probably not in the forefront when people are making their day-to-day -day decisions about what they do. However, someone who does have that knowledge may be able to make better decisions for sure. So I guess that's a pushing a little back on the notion that the whole world needs to be built out and sort of fleshed out and that you have to have an broad understanding. I think that the understanding can be filtered a little bit by what the characters are expected to know. Perhaps one of the advantages of using medieval or ancient worlds as a model is that the characters do know less. They haven't been exposed to other cultures. They don't know about the barbarian hordes to the north. They've never explored that. No one's. They, they know that people go there and disappear and don't come back, but they've heard rumors of monsters, but they don't know exactly what that's about. And so it is a lot about exploring the world outside of your little village. And I think that probably is a, well, and that may be why, you know, science fiction chooses space as a you know the, the unknown pushing beyond those boundaries and again it's 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 the exploration piece that is fun so yeah there. fully agree and then exactly as you say i mean it, it's not because you need to build out that barbarian culture all there and, and over there and then you know need to know but but the, just the fact that you know that there is one that alone it, it's a very small thing but that alone that you can as you just said you know you can just drop that thing into the session like you know you know as a character that there is something going on over there there might be some monsters you have no idea but there is something but if you don't 
know it, then you have to make it up on the fly, which of course can be done, but it just doesn't <laughs> never have the same depth to it. But at the same time, of course, with all this world building stuff, the the story is not about the world building. And, and, and that's important to keep in mind that the, the world building is supporting the story. It's there to make it more immersive and, 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 and add the depth to it. But it's certainly not about the world building. And, and we need to be careful there, both as game masters, but also as authors, that, that we don't fall so much in love with our own creation that, that we make things be about that. Because it's not. Mm-hmm. It's about the characters and it's about the characters' actions and it, it's about what they experience. And, and then the world will, will serve as the immersive medium that makes you want to consume it. But it, it's, not, it's not really what it's about at the end of the day. And what you're saying about you know having these different cultures, actually, that's one of my favorite parts of world building slash writing that's where like the how we talked about the modules you know up till module seven which is on the magic after that it gets more into developing a little bit of cultures and weaving the story and the world together so that's sort of the back half of the course but that's where i have an ecology degree and i just absolutely adore seeing how you say you know you create this map you create maybe this magic you create this race and you put it on this one peninsula this one island and they're separated by mountains and how do they live how do they develop their own traditions and their own way of thinking and what's important to them and creating a character that comes from that place that thinks totally different from everyone else and using them to tell the story or to be part of the story and to kind of make everyone challenge all of their different beliefs and that is really i mean i think that's what gets me the most excited about world building is then to take that world and seed life into it and see what grows out of it and evolves from it and the history of it and why people do what they do. How do they get married? You know, do they choose spouses? What is allowed in this culture? So those are the, the parts that I think are the most interesting and all comes because you did take the time to build your world. If you don't do that, you'll be relying on the tropes of elves or dwarves or ogres or, and those are Fine, but you can make it so much more unique and interesting and based on what you've created. And maybe wow the people playing the game or reading the book just going, that is so cool. I was thinking about, oh, pardon me. (laughs) The magic voice has faltered. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Every once in a while, I have to reset it. Oh, my God. We have a high pollen count in West Virginia today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm susceptible to pollen. So when, Andrew, you were talking about, you know, the ability to move things and, you know, sometimes locations and the actual, you know, compass isn't important. I was thinking about, especially for people who homebrew, you know, their own adventures and campaigns and, and all of that, that there. There's something a little more special, and and this goes to what Jesper was saying, there's something a little more special about the people that I know that have taken the time to create this in-depth blueprint for the world. And what Autumn was saying about creating this detailed blueprint of the the culture and, you know, everything from plant life on up Mm -hmm. and how these people live on that side of the mountain versus this side of the mountain. And the homebrew adventures that I've been in, 
where the game masters had that kind of build available, who's actually done the good job of not slamming, you know, it in the face of the players, that there's a there's a difference between what I would consider in game mastering a cliche encounter driven session where you're really just expecting to kind of have an encounter and maybe fight the next monster and maybe make a you know charisma or knowledge check here that it's easier you know to kind of drop these things in but if you're doing an arc based campaign if you're if you're doing something that's relying more on story and the role playing elements between the characters that extra knowledge really gives you a much richer experience but they're two different kinds of gameplay you know you've you've got one kind where they are very forgiving if you happen to drop a graveyard right there <laughs> or mm-hmm. you know hey there's a dungeon around the corner versus and and I'm thinking about people I knew who did live action role playing and thinking about people who did things that were a lot more thematic and a lot more dramatic that you, it's two different kinds of play styles and I'm thinking that people who enjoy creating the kind of campaign where you have these incredibly rich connections that this kind of instruction is kind of cool because you know it allows you to kind of have this as your blueprint but for you know if you're if you're just dropping the little things in it's just an interesting thing i was thinking you know the kind of division between that cliche encounter driven and and kind of a broader arc driven you know is different kinds of campaigns to build this background information on yeah yeah it's it's two very different things for sure i I guess from a let's say role-playing game perspective it's really a matter of what kind of players you have you're dealing with you know some people like the hack and slash stuff and that's all they mm-hmm. want to do and that that's fine if that's the kind of it, it really comes to again it's, it's about the audience right <laughs> what what do they want but for sure if, if they want the more character driven stuff then it is well in quotation marks it, it's more difficult to to build because you, you need to you, you, there is a higher demand than you as the game master to both both on the world building side but certainly also on the story side to to create these opportunities at least or set up the opportunities that that the players can seize upon it if they want and and develop their characters there and 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 have experiences and so on and keep presenting options for the players to to latch on to if they please and and if something entices them to say yeah this is perfect for my character and i'll do that even sometimes if it's if it's bad to the character themselves, because they will come out changed on the other side of it. But but it really, again, depends on your audience, in this case players, or if it's readers, of course, what what is the type of book you're writing? And you need to be very mindful that about that, even as an author. You, need, you really need to think about what is the kind of audience that I'm writing for. Because there are also books that is more like action hack and slash kind of thing not entirely not not the same thing as in role playing but there are books that are more focused on that and then other books that are more focused on the character development and 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 the underlying story and and so on and you need to be mindful what you're writing because otherwise <laughs> people will be disappointed and especially especially when it comes to book covers because book covers has only the one job is to signal what kind of book this is and if you don't get that right 
you might have written the most amazing story ever, but uh, if the cover is wrong, then you will attract the wrong kind of readers, and they won't like it, even if if it's really very very well done. So you need to be you need to always have the audience in mind. Been a victim of the book cover switcheroo <laughs> before. Yeah. So I I know exactly what you're talking about there. Yeah. I was thinking about something you had said, Autumn, about characters growing mm. throughout the the story and taking something and, you know, you're working on a trilogy and, you know, kind of drawing that out before you release it so mm-hmm. that you kind of fully realize these things. I'm curious, and this is off topic, <laughs> do you have a favorite character interaction that the two of you have worked on that you've written together that you just kind of find was your most surprising or enjoyable by the end of their journey? That's a tough one, because I was thinking, as you were saying, that we were talking about character art, and we use the term grow, and I do find that it's always good to remind everyone, including, because I've had a, I had a lovely review once, it's like, the character didn't grow in this story, and characters don't always have to grow, there's three types of arcs, there's a grow arc, a heroic arc, there's a flat arc, which is unusual, but it is there, and it can be very equally powerful. And then there's a fail arc. And it's fun when I know when I write on my own that I'll have, you know, the main character does a heroic arc, but then they're at their top, and then book two, they might go into a fail arc. Or, you know, maybe somebody goes through a maintenance. You know, they do things like that. I think it's it's fun to switch out your arcs. It might surprise readers, though, because every once in a while, everyone thinks every... Every character gets to be heroic, and I don't know. I like throwing my favorite characters to the wolves and seeing if the wolves will win every once in a while. They always say authors are cruel. But for (laughs) us, I think both of us have a favorite character that is a white elf assassin. And she's pretty... She's growing, you know, came as an idea. She's tertiary, or actually secondary character. And she's definitely fighting to have to be the lead in the books, I think. Uh, she's just too much fun and too cool because how cool could a white elf assassin, you know, how could that not be cool? Yeah, on top of that, she's blind. <laughs> so, yeah. so she's And she's blind. Yeah, she's blind. Yeah. It's a blind white elf assassin, and she's really cool. And the funny thing, it wasn't actually before we started writing her that I really started, and I was emailing <laughs> Autumn, like, uh, the first time I wrote uh, the first chapter with her, and afterward I was emailing Autumn, like, I think this is my favorite character. I didn't even realize it until I wrote it. But like, this is awesome. <laughs> She's awesome. In what book is she introduced? She is in uh, Magic Unleashed, which is not a book we've released yet, but it's the okay. one where he's written it and I'm editing it. And I think we're going to hold all three of them together to release at once. But okay. it's yeah. on book two, at least. Yeah. So it'll probably be 2022 before those yeah. three books comes out. But, but it's a work in progress at the moment. So it occurred to me that the the world is its own character, and we were talking about arcs and arc development, and maybe you could touch on how to construct an arc for the world. Right, yeah, that's an interesting question as well. Because again, I mean, as Autumn said about the character arcs, it's not necessarily that you have to change something in the world. The world can remain the same, and that that's also fine. But again, it... it because the the story is not about the world, as I said before. So if you want to have something changing in the world, it should be because of what happens from character actions. So, for example, if they 
they wake up a dark god who's gonna destroy half the population or whatever, then the world will be massively changed afterward. But it was because somebody did something. It's not just because it happened because I thought it, that would be cool. And then out of the blue, here came the dark god you never heard about before. And then 500 million people died. <laughs> That's not cool. <laughs> and nobody likes that. Yeah, I was, I was, I think that the, uh, that question came from considering Dune as a, mm -hmm. and that world playing such a prominent role in the motivations of the characters, et cetera. The, well, it made me think about post-apocalyptic stories. I mean, would you call a post-apocalyptic <laughs> yeah, post world, is that a fail arc? It is an interesting idea to tie an arc to the world itself. And is it malevolent? Is it something that's getting better? There's a lot of things. I mean, the never-ending story, it's the world itself is slowly being unraveled. So there really can make the world, if it is changing in a way that is affecting the characters, you know, you can definitely look at that as, is this really what is beginning the inciting incident, what is moving the characters forward because of something, be it a dark god that has risen or people stop believing in something in the world anymore and it's just kind of falling apart or we all, you know, destroyed it and so we're all suffering the consequences. Are the worlds that you created, I'm sure given the number of writings that you've got, you've got probably a large assortment. Do you think that a dynamic world is more difficult to create, easier to consider maybe one that's in that maintenance mode where it's not changing too much? Is there a different process for developing a dynamic world as opposed to one that is more static? I think you have to do more world building to create the before and after, like how is it changing, what is changing? Because yes, it's just like if you have a character who's like a tertiary and shows up in a scene, you know, it's one thing to have a world that is fleshed out and the characters are traveling through it and enjoying it and you have those things you're sharing. But if it is actively changing and forcing changes in the characters, you're going to be spending a lot more time world building and looking at that before and after. It's probably a slightly similar conversation to what we talked about before in terms of a hack and slash campaign versus a character driven one, because it's it's the same thing in the sense that it requires more work if you want it to be immersive in in that instead of it's just it's not just a battlefield anymore but it actually has a role to play in our uh, in the setting that uh, we're currently writing as well we we we'll, we're going to write all our books in a new setting we created called Elysium but in Elysium you have a desert as well where the in the sand there is a crystal and this crystal is one of the nations in the world have figured out how to mine this crystal because the crystal itself expels waters. So you can basically use it as a fuel. So if you, for example, you have sort of a, let's imagine you have like a scooter thing and you're releasing a bit of the crystal into the water, it'll propel you forward, right? So, but the problem is that if it touches your skin, it will expel the water from your body as well. So you will die. So it's incredibly dangerous. But one of the nations in the world has actually figured out how to mine this stuff and sell it. So as a consequence, the world has all of a sudden changed what was like a, a smaller nation into probably one of the most powerful nations now because they have technology and the money and culture that nobody else has. And they sell this aquilunite, as it's called, this crystal. They sell that to everybody else and they, they earn a lot of money and do more investment in technology. So so they're quite far advanced to the other nations. And, and I think that's a an example of how the world in itself plays a role and defines the cultures and, and the 
power between nations as well on a like na- nationwide political scale. Got me thinking. <laughs> uh, we've kind of gone on this this dune arc from mm-hmm. from spice to to crystal, right? <laughs> uh, in our conversation, which I think is really cool. When when we were talking earlier, there was the you know remark about hitting people in the face and. Did did anyone but me, when they were younger, see the Dune movie in the movie theater? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did, yeah. Mm. Okay. When you all saw it, did you get the guide? They did that in mm. some movie theaters. They had a printed guide that had all of the major planets and their political structures and the history of Spice. <laughs> So that okay. your average person going in wouldn't be completely overwhelmed. But how in God's name were you going to read that in the 15 minutes before the movie started in the dark? And, you know, one of those things that it, it was it was a failing. And that that movie did so poorly at the box office because there was just too much information for people to absorb. Mm-hmm. And. It made me think about it when Andrew mentioned that and you mentioned the crystal. And the crystal thing, I think that's amazing. I love that idea. And you see, I'm I'm the guy who would gobble that up in the beginning. <laughs> it's like, oh, tell me more. Tell me more. How do they what tell me about the scientists? Right, right. Yeah, you know, actually but, I think in the in the novel, if I remember correctly, the first time this crystal is mentioned is probably like ten chapters in. Until then you haven't never heard about it. So uh, <laughs> I think it's a little earlier, but it's, a, Maybe it's eight, like a little passing but, reference. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, we need that because we need it for the transportation to the mainland from an island. It's like, oh, where is it? It's just, we don't even explain it. We just say you need it. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of time to kind of get into how dangerous it is and how difficult mm-hmm. it is. And yeah, it's it's way too much fun to have a whole desert of stuff that will just kill you. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah, and it makes really it do. makes it very funny when the wind blows and then this stuff comes oh. in. And uh... <laughs> that's not funny. That's the wrong word. <laughs> well, as, as Autumn said earlier, we authors we are evil. <laughs> okay. And so you can't do that as a dungeon master. You can't take joy in plotting the deaths of your characters if you want them to come back to your table and play again Darn. next week. Some do. Some do. Some do. Yeah, of course they, they they do have. Yeah, they have limited players. Don't usually return. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh my god! <laughs> and all of a sudden, the conversation took a turn. <laughs> I was thinking about the Game of Thrones being a dynamic world. You know, constantly on the verge of change. Mm-hmm. And the political shifts and. Yeah. You actually got me thinking about Avatar, which is, again, another world that was really changing. And it played an active role. It helped to win the war at the end of the movie. Good stuff. Yeah, it's, it, it, these, are, these mm-hmm. worlds. But, but again, if, if you're thinking back on what are the kind of worlds that you remember, right? And it's probably these that has something that actually had a role to play. These are the worlds you remember, whereas the more stereotypical, standardized the settings, well, they might be fine when you read it or watched the movie or whatever you did, but it's not something that you mem- you can memorize or remember 10 years later, like, oh, that, w- that one was cool, right? That, that there, has, there was something special there. Uh, and that's really what, what we try to aim for, to create something that is... It's, it's familiar enough that you recognize it, but then it has like a spin on it that 
oh, okay, that was cool. Because usually if you go all the way out and you create something so unique that nobody ever heard about it before, it is too foreign for people and they don't really latch onto it because it's like, well, some people will love it, but most people will be like, yeah, it feels a bit weird. I mean, I, I see what you're going for, but I can't quite relate to it. Whereas if you pull it a bit back and, and latch onto something that they already like, and then do your own twist on things and then change it out a bit, then people feel like, yeah, this is familiar, but it's new. And that's really what you most of the time want to aim for. I was going to say, otherwise you need that 12-page guide before the movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, right. You read with a flashlight. And... <laughs> yeah. Yes. Go ahead, Andrew. It occurred to me that in some situations, it may actually be the goal to make the world invisible so that you don't aren't distracted by it. That it's a it's an accent, but not too much of an accent, sort of like salt on your food. It brings out the flavor of the characters, but you don't want it to be too salty. You don't want the salt to dominate the story. And that's probably a very subtle challenge. Do you have any tricks to guard against that? I would say I I always look at like what Jesper was saying. There's a framework of fantasy. There's Things that you don't usually have to explain, no matter what culture someone is from, because this is an international market, an international world, and not, as it's one of the things I love about indie stories and indie authors, is that you have these tellings from people who grew up in Ethiopia, who grew up in Nepal, you know, the Chinese. It's wonderful what they consider history, and everyone knows is not something that someone from, you know, Idaho is going to possibly be familiar with. And so every story should come with at least some background explanation. But some things are there, you know, dragons, they're almost in every culture. You usually don't have to explain them. I know my first my first editor didn't know what a mage was, and that was a big sign that I didn't need that person as an editor because it wasn't going to work out in the long run. But there's a framework, a certain amount of fantasy that most times you don't have to describe to too hugely, but you need to at least say, this is what is different about my dragon. This is different. what's different about my ogres. And readers, though, they really do like some sense of familiarity, but it's familiarity of fantasy, of magic, of the kind of world and the type of story, more than each of the individual components, because there is no Earth framework of fantasy. Everyone is coming from a different culture and a different worldview. And I think that's sort of what is neat and what is amazing about it right now is that there are so many diverse voices. It's not just male-female anymore. We have so many cultures who are writing amazing stories. And it's also a matter about how much you're dosing it in. Because, I mean, knowing, for example, that in this culture they, do, they only eat fish or, or whatever. I mean, that, that's wonderful and that's something you can sort of season in as a bit of sprinkle in between everything else. But that doesn't mean that it's the same as spending half a page explaining why they only eat fish and, and so on and so on, <laughs> right? like when nobody cares, right? So I guess what I'm trying to say is as well that fantasy readers or fantasy role players, a part of what we like is the world as well. It is part of it. So, so in my view, you have to deliver on those expectations and you have to make sure that the world is part of what is going on to some degree. And then, of course, there is a variance and you can do more or less, but, but it has to play some sort of role in the bigger picture. But then shoehorning in some world building you did because now I did this world building, so I better use it. So now I'm going <laughs> to put all of this stuff in front of you because I think 
of course, it's awesome, uh, goes without saying, but at the same time, it doesn't really belong to what's happening here, but I want you to experience it, so here you go. And, and that's the part where I would say, there, there you need to stop yourself. <laughs> <laughs> triggered. I'm triggered again. <laughs> I, was, I was getting ready to direct the conversation to Steve to say, <laughs> Steve, do you wish you had had this conversation before you did your, your run? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fine though. That's fine. It 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 helps me and and that's you know part of the part of the thing that I'm trying to do is to build this campaign and and make myself a better GM since I'm just kind of, you know, I've been thinking about it for you know 38 years. But uh <laughs> you know I've got all those unfinished book excerpts and I've got all those unfinished adventure excerpts and all that stuff. And I have my maps and I have my, my notebooks full of histories and all that, you know, stuff that you just, you know, as someone who has those stories, mm -hmm. it's really hard for me not to just want to let everybody know everything. No, I know. And I think I know. there's a part for that though. That is, there are the the maybe 2% of fans who totally want to geek out on everything. And you need a world bible and that's what websites these days with some of the you can create your own on your own website. There's other places like World Anvil, you can upload it and having a link in the book or you know having if you have some mm. other gamers that are like, "Oh yes, I want to know all about your world and this is so fascinating and tell me more about this crystal they should have a place to go other than maybe sending you an email but it is it is fun to share that because we do spend so much time building it and we love it and you know we want to talk about how magic works and why this happens and this doesn't happen and but you don't want to do that to everyone because you know, it's like going to a party there's going to be the one two people that you can totally go in depth with the conversation everyone else you just go around you shake hands you have a conversation talk about the weather move on Sure. So, so Stephen, you should set up your your world as its own product, as she said, this atlas, and then create a story to spark interest in selling your atlas. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I I feel like I've learned something very very important, and you know, I mean, not everybody wants to read the Cimmerillion. Uh, I was just thinking drink. about that. Actually. I was <laughs> definitely thinking about the Silmarillion. <laughs> yeah. See? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It, 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 hold on. It was like, the Hobbit is great. Every, everybody <laughs> <What>? drink. Yeah. <laughs> the Silmarillion is like the perfect example of what we're talking about here. Because I, I, I like to read it. And I actually have it on my Kindle now because I'm going to read it again. But but just I'm also mindful that I'm probably within like the probably not even 10%, maybe 2% of people who love that stuff. Uh, but most people don't. Uh, and, and you'll have the same let's say span of audience in between role-playing players that you will in readers that most people don't want that stuff there's a few who will love it and and then give them the website link and say well you know between sessions you can go to this link and read about all this stuff but don't deliver it in the session unless it's directly relevant to what the character is doing I love you guys. Thank you. <laughs> we will that validate makes, you. Makes me happy. I mean, you know, I know Tracy and Andrew are like, maybe this will help him scale it down. This will be good. 
that's okay. I, I I love Tracy and Andrew too. Andrew most of the time. We we, we love to watch you watch you grow. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh yeah, that's good. Oh, oh, that's so sweet. I wanted to ask uh, Tracy if she had anything she wanted to ask you all that maybe she didn't get a chance to during this past hour. Not to put you on the spot, I just thought. Just put me on the spot, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> you know. You're welcome. Yes. Make it a token reference. <laughs> I'm almost out. Lost Tales. That's, that's my token reference. Okay. So I love this idea of having a place. Do you like when we, when we, if you take this course, these se- segments that we guys, we are offering here, like, is there a, do you, do you, do you end up with a book? Do you end up with a website? Like, do you end up with notebooks or like, where do you put your world? Do you leave like your world is a reference here and then you, where do you put it? Like, does it exist in, in the cloud? Yeah, well, actually, some of the starting modules, before you get way into all the world building stuff, uh, some of the starting modules actually talk you through you, some considerations about where you put it. Because, of course, you have a million options. You, you can put it in, uh, well, Nightmare is probably Word, word files, but it's <laughs> possible. But Scrivener is a great tool because you, you can sort of cycle through the different um, sections in Scrivener quite easily. There are like we talked about here, like World Anvil, Obsidian Portal, those kind of places where you can actually put, usually a lot of the time you can get free versions of, of those, uh, on those uh, free accounts on those websites where you can put your world. In our particular case, we are gonna, we haven't done it yet uh, because we're still working on the actual novels in this new world, but we are gonna put all of it sort of as a wiki on our own website so that people can click into different topics and go through the world and, and sort of link everything. So basically, like more or less like the same thing as World Anvil and, and Obsidian Portal and those places do, but just on our own website. I think it also becomes a lot of a question about what it, what is what are you going to use it for, meaning that I do you have a need to share it with other people or is it more like your own game master reference? Because if it's more like your own game master reference, you probably need something that is as easily as possible to search within to find your stuff that you need. Uh, and then it doesn't really matter about the graphical layout or does it look good and so on and so on. Of course, I always like to have something at least that is electronic because it, it is much easier to edit and, and move around and, and, and what have you than something and you have written in a physical... Picture. Yeah, search and <laughs> find is wonderful, yes. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, there is an, an intro... One of the intro modules actually talks about all this stuff. Excellent. It sounds much more functional than the tabs and the 16 notebooks that are paper right. in yes. the drawer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and you can do that stuff. You, you can do those notebooks, right? But it, it's editing it or moving stuff around, deleting something or adding to it when there's no more place or page on the page is full up already. It, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But each to his own, of course. But we are giving some options in the course of how to do it. Have you guys used DevonThink? No, I haven't heard that one. So it is a freeform database. You can upload all of your files to this database, and then it indexes them based on their content, and it will actually identify files that are similar. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way to build connections that you don't necessarily see or recognize. So you pull up a note on one particular topic that you've written or that you've added to the database, and it will pull up all of the notes that have similar content. 
and show those alongside it. So it's you were talking about ease of search, and it's a it's a tool. I do a, some investigative work, and I use that for my case management type of thing, mm-hmm. so that I can constantly sort of cross-reference different material on a particular assignment. So, yeah. The way you're describing it, I think my husband, he's into InfoSec, and he, I think he's mentioned it now that you describe it, it's ringing a bell. Yeah, and I think a lot of people in that community use uh, Multigo as a way to build interactions between elements of a story. So if you, if not, and that's, a, I think it's got a free version, Multigo does another way to sort of keep track of links between elements. Yeah. I, and when you said that, I'm also thinking about Archivus. So we we interviewed on our own, on the Am Writing Fantasy podcast, we interviewed the owner of Archivus at some point as well. And he talked about, it's it's pretty cool as well because it has a whole graphical layout. So so things will start linking together with characters and places and all that, which is quite cool as well. So uh, that it, it's really not a matter of lack of tools. It's more about <laughs> trying to figure out what you think is best for your use because there is so much opportunities nowadays in terms of available tools. Okay. Now, as a wrap-up, Ottoman Jesper, do you have any questions for us or anything you want to bring up to put in? No, not that really questions. I I hope we said something at least that uh, sparked a few ideas also for listeners or, or maybe helped along uh, a bit uh, here and there. But of course, as you also said earlier, if people want to learn more about the sort of the world building and the writing parts, then they can go to Am Writing Fantasy. And if they're more interested in the fiction stuff, then you can go to Am Reading Fantasy. That was pretty smart, huh? <laughs> So I have that tab yeah, up. Yeah, on Am Reading Fantasy, uh, there isn't much right now, but that's the site that is going to be built out in the future with all the world building stuff and, and books and whatnot. Right now, there's only uh, a single uh, short story there that we wrote in the, this new world of Elysium. It, it's available for free if you, you can download it there from Am Reading Fantasy. But that's all there is there right now. But there's going to be a ton more to come, especially as we go into 2022. Fantastic. Autumn, anything you want to add at the end? No, he pretty much already beat me to the website, but that's (laughs) really, really the best place to find us. And of course, on the podcast. Thanks for joining us on Game Mastery. You can always check us out on anchor.fm slash game dash mastery or follow us on Twitter at mastery underscore game, Instagram at game mastery podcast or Facebook and YouTube at game mastery. If you'd like to ask us a question or get some follow-up information, maybe submit a topic for the show, please email us at rpg.gamemastery at gmail.com. And we'll be back next week for more information to make your games better and to make you a better Game Master.